This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with David DeCipio, an experienced designer, psychologist, and founder of the meetup community called UX Psychology. We discuss what UX Psychology is and how it helps overcome challenges, as well as discover opportunities when working at the intersection of people, science, and technology. This is a fascinating subject area with pragmatic references from David for delivering healthcare or health tech with a human-centered design approach. Let's jump in. Well, hey, David, uh, thanks for making the time today. How are you doing? Great, Yanni. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, coming along. Um, so, uh, look, I've met you uh, fairly recently through the uh, online space, ironically, and um, you are heavily into the uh, UX psychology and uh, and uh, we want to talk a little bit more about the community that you formed. So you're in a meetup group. You've got quite a following there with uh, members around UX psychology. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what UX yeah. psychology is? Great timing because last night we we ran a meetup um, at ANZ actually, and uh, we had about fifty people come. And the topic was actually around the mind and remembering. Um, so we had the full time world memory coach. His name's Tansil Ali. He came down and ran a workshop, a very fun and interactive workshop to talk about how really you can remember things better. A lot of the people that do come are either in, you know, experience design, they're content people, some of them are developers, some of them are investors, some of them run their own businesses. It's a real mixed bag, similar to what you're probably experiencing with the health tech space as well and your podcasts and your events. I'm sure you've noticed this as well. It's, It's just a flourishing space. It really is. I mean, look, um, I've been a massive fan of the internet ever since it was, you know, invented. (laughs) So looking at the transformation from, you know, initially the idea that we could just send some packets of data, you know, from one device to the next to, you know, where it's gotten to now. We're right at the intersection between people and tech. And, you know, if you believe some of the stories coming out of uh, the Silicon Valley at the moment, we're not too far away from actually crossing the line between our brains and the way that we physically intersect with tech as well. So, you know, tech and people very much go hand in hand. So, uh, you know, the area that you're in around the user experience or UX for Mm. those people who don't understand the acronym, the user experience, um, it's absolutely key because we're sentient, right? We're humans, we're emotional, um, we have feelings, we process life in, you know, various different ways, depending on our backgrounds and upbringing. And, you know, we're a much more diverse culture now. So there'd be a lot of challenges. What are some key things that you're seeing in in the UX realm at the moment? It's funny you say that because when I founded the the meetup, the first line in the meetup was actually, you know, tech is all about humans. And I remember someone saying, it's very esoteric. Like, how does tech (laughs) relate to humans? And I've had people (laughs) ask me that. I was thinking, it's actually got a lot. Yeah. It's not always obvious. Um, that it is the case. Um, Some of the big things I'm seeing in tech at the moment, and especially within the user experience space, is this focus on behavioural science and behavioural economics. And some of the key players in this space that I'm constantly looking at um, are people like BJ Fogg, 
who you may be familiar with. And BJ Foggs has this famous model, and he's from Stanford actually. He's developed this model, and it's around behavior equals motivation times ability times some prompt. So when companies you know, use this model and have this at their core, they're actually thinking about how they can help people achieve goals online. I haven't come across many companies that are thinking like this about their tech. Um, so there's definitely huge opportunities to grow in this space. And that's just one of the many you know, out there. And I'm starting to see a huge emergence in behavioral economics and behavioral design. We're more than tip of the iceberg at the moment. I think it's it's starting to break through. Do you want to just explain a little bit about those three areas of the uh, FOG behaviour model, which is the the motivation, ability yeah. and prompt? Do you want to just expand on those a little bit? Yeah, I'll try my best trying to do it on the <laughs> podcast, but this is best on a screen. So I highly encourage you, if you do have the opportunity, just Google the BJ FOG model. So the BJ FOG model essentially says that there are three components to any behavior occurring. So if you have motivation, if you have the ability to carry out that behavior and there's a sufficient prompt for you to do it, a behavior will occur. So as an example, let's look at um, like maybe like snacking. So maybe around four o'clock when you start to get a little bit hungry or you want some caffeine or you feel like some chocolate, right? The reason this generally occurs, right? So you've got the motivation. You want to, you want something sweet. You then go to your fridge or you go to the vending machine or you go down to the shop and the ability is really easy. You can buy that chocolate bar, you can buy that coffee, right? And the prompt may be boredom. The prompt may be end of the day. The prompt may be tiredness. So that's an example of how, you know, behavior of snacking actually occurs. You can break down all behaviors like that and especially online. So, and it's a really fascinating space and we can continue to go into it, but We'll just contextualise a little bit. So the idea yeah. of um, a prompt it doesn't necessarily mean an instruction, but it's some sort of what association with a um, a time, a place, or uh, some other attribute. How would you expand on the idea of a prompt? In tech, for example, a prompt may be like a notification on your mobile. It may also be an, an email, for example. That's an external prompt. But you've also got your internal prompts. Your internal prompts might be those things like boredom, might be things like hunger, might be things like irritation, might be things like happiness, right? So that's that's an example of a prompt. I sort of relate to mm. it. Uh, those who know me uh, pretty well would certainly know where I'm coming from with this, but um, I think I'm long overdue for getting some glasses. You know, my, oh. uh, I'm in a state of <laughs> denial around my eyesight at the moment. I'm putting it down to uh, looking at screens a lot and fatigue, but I think it is age uh, sort of catching up. But look, um, there's prompts there. So the prompts right. would be when, uh, uh, for example, I was doing a presentation recently and um, I couldn't yep. actually read my slide notes. Oh, and no. um, and that was actually a, a, a really personally confronting situation being in front of <laughs> 150 people while I was uh, uh, doing that. Would that be a prompt? You know, I'm in yeah. a situation where uh, <laughs> I, <Definitely. laughs> I certainly have the ability to go to an optometrist. Um, yes. But my motivation is, uh, would it be my motivation right now that's holding me back? Yeah. I, I think I'm undervaluing it relative to everything else that goes on in my day. So making a time to get out to, uh, um, you know, the optometrist, I haven't found the motivation for it yet. But I think just to contextualise this, so I have the ability to go to the optometrist. I'm getting prompted through my sometimes inability to read my slides or, or read my uh, emails organically. 
So, but my motivation now is a little bit in question. I think that's the way I'm relating to this. Well, there you go. Very, you're very aware of these things. That's very interesting. So that's exactly how this model plays out. Yeah, you're spot on. You're spot on. And so, you know, you're talking about behavioral science there. Are these theories now or are they, you know, where's it at? Is it still? I'd say the BJ Fogg model is a theory that's grounded in quite a lot of evidence. Yep. Um, however, there are, are other models, for example, like the hook model, which um, Nurial speaks about, um, which is more like best practice and theory. I don't know how much research has gone into the actual hook canvas. Are you familiar with the hook canvas and no. um, Nurial? Tell us a little bit more about it. It's a fantastic model. It sort of just resonates. It's so advanced for the time that I think eventually it'll catch up and more and more products will be using this as they already are. However, there are four elements to the hook model. And the way I tend to remember it is by the acronym Atari, like that old um, game console, The computer game, yep. For anything to occur, there's a trigger, there's an action, there needs to be then some sort of um, variable reward, and then there needs to be some sort of reinvestment into that process. So for any product to become sticky, like if you think a product like Facebook, if you think like any other like habit-forming product, like maybe Instagram, Snapchat, any of those all follow this loop. So there's a there's a trigger. A big one is boredom for Facebook, for example, or YouTube. Boredom, you want some stimulation. The action then is you open your app, you click your app, you straight in, right? You then start scrolling through the app and yep. sometimes you might see things that you like from a friend or you might find something that you haven't seen before and you're, you're rewarded in your brain. So there's a little dopamine hit. And then you might make a comment on that thing. So then you reinvest in that process and the loop starts over again. Has that uh, discovered or built up evidence that dopamine hit is um, what is causing people to get hooked? Is that kind of the, the meaning of it? Exactly. Each time that you're rewarded, especially within technology, it's that little bit of dopamine that's released. Yep. And it's the same thing that's released when we eat chocolate or when we do something pleasurable. Uh, we've spoken a lot, a lot about snacking and chocolate here. Maybe it's because we're coming up to lunchtime. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a good example, right? Yes, it's definitely that dopamine. And we actually don't know what that dopamine effect is doing to us long term. And that's, that's something I think we're going to see more of. It's like this exploration of how technology is actually impacting our brain. Yeah, um, and I suppose that's the uh, that's the chemistry. So there's a chemical reaction that's going on there that's being sort of um, understood pretty well. I think there's an emerging criticism of um, some of the social media platforms for exploiting that. I didn't realise it was called the hook model per se, but uh, I did understand that, you know, for example, that that thing you do when you're in your feed um, where you actually just, it, you know, you put your finger on the screen and pull down mm. on your mobile and then release, and then there's a little sort of circular... Uh, visualization there that something's happening and then your screen refreshes. Um, I'd become aware of that, that that was modeled on the um, slot machine type concept where you'd pull a handle down and then all of these rotating bars would be spinning around and there was something that chemically that was happening that was keeping us at the slot machine. And so, you know, the tech giants use that type of understanding to then create that kind of pull down and release type mechanism, right? And that's kind of something that is really subconscious you know a lot of people wouldn't even focus on that they probably will now when they hear it and they understand it's a bit like the magic trick right it looks amazing until you actually discover what the actual trick is in some sense exactly so i can i can i can see how potentially that might be perceived in a negative light but you know how can it be used for good 
Exactly. You know, when I'm at dinner parties and I'm talking about the work that I do, um, a lot of people bring up like Cambridge Analytica or like, you know, these sort of manipulative things, right? But I say, actually, there's a whole lot of great stuff happening in technology that we're actually just dismissing by saying and mentioning just that. But like I was just at a conference recently, UX Australia, which was fantastic. And there was someone who was speaking about technology and they were saying, there's this great app, for example, on, this is just an example, but I've got many examples, right? But there's one about how you can actually use an app to help you overcome jet lag. And I thought, this is fantastic, right? It's just one example. Another example is I was working at Ausmed and they've, they've built an app to help people um, document their CPD. Now, this is another perfect example of where they're actually helping people document their CPD one, but then reflecting on their learning which hasn't been done, right, which hasn't been done. And it's, it's just phenomenal, the power that technology can have. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. But, you know, do you also have examples of, you know, where technology is being used for good? Oh, look, I think um, there's a lot of examples around us where tech is used for good. We'll go into that, but I was just curious about that. I think CPD yeah. documentation would be a big one for uh, uh, some of the listeners. Um, so yeah. what was the name of that application again? Or that? Yeah, so it's called Ausmed. A-U-S-M-E-D. All right. So we'll see if we can get a link into the show notes for that as well because I think everybody, well, you know, um, certainly under the Australian uh, Professional Development Guidelines, there's definitely scope for doing that. So I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that actually plays itself out. But, look, I think tech in general terms, um, well, obviously with health tech, um, that's a bit of an obsession from my point of view and, (laughs) you know, being able to deal with, uh, I guess, the the journey, you know, what it's like for... um, clients or you know, patients, for example, to move through the healthcare system. And there needs to be some sort of um, uh, better understanding of um, issues that overcome, you know, the handover um, issues yeah. around not showing up, you know, not committing to the treatment plans and what have you. Um, so, you know, people can um, uh, maintain themselves in a, um, you know, a chronic state of disease by not actually embracing the guidance and the wisdom that their healthcare providers are trying to support them with you know, through that process. And so I could imagine that understanding some of these behavioural uh, science mm. elements could actually be really useful in designing digital healthcare experiences that support a higher commitment to that person's, you know, goals and, and what they're trying to actually achieve out of it. I could see that being something that would be pretty relevant. Definitely. And I suppose there's this. So there are models which are great to apply, but there's also processes and frameworks like the human-centred design model, which is also something I think anyone designing digital products in this age should be really, really familiar with. Um, And essentially, the HCD process, the human-centered design process, is really about including the people that are going to be using the products that you are designing into the process and then balancing business needs with customer needs because obviously you need both. If you do too much of one and not the other, your product fails. That's another thing that just popped into my mind, actually. I just take it for granted because this is just the way that we work now, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot, of the, a lot of listeners and a lot of people new to this space potentially may not have ever, ever heard of human-centered design. So really, really important. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more? I mean, you know, the, when you literally say human-centered design, I think that almost says it. But I think in pragmatic terms, why don't we put that in the context of um, a health provider? How would a health provider go about doing human-centered design if they wanted to start that today? So essentially the crux of the human-centered design process is the double-diamond approach. So essentially it starts with a problem. For example, I'm going to assume that 
maybe doctor surgeries have a problem with booking people in or booking, making appointments, finding the right time. So there's a whole discovery process that happens in the first stage. And there are, there are four stages, I'd say. So we start with discover, we then define, we then develop a solution, and then we deliver. So in that first part, in helping define or discover the problem, we really dive into the experience. So we might do some interviews with some people. We might look at some data around what's the current booking process. Or we might also look at our competitors. What are our surgeries down the road doing, for example? We then come to the second stage of the double diamond, which is essentially defining the problem. We have this hunch that there might be a problem with this, but what is it? Like, what is the problem? How many people are affected by it? Um, so then we define it in a statement. So the problem is, you know, people can't find it the right time to see their doctor. So then from that, right, we get to the point where we've got a, a problem statement and we've defined the problem. We can then develop something to help test that assumption, right? So we might build a new booking system, get something that we can show people, not just tell people, right? And that's why showing is a lot better than telling at this part. And we can then iterate, right? So we can get something in front of people, we can deliver something, we can learn. And essentially, we get to a point where we've got something tangible. So that's essentially the human-centered design process. That resonates a lot. And I take you know that point that you made earlier that you can take these things for granted. It, it seems to me that the deeper you go into a subject matter, the more you think that everybody just gets it. And then you don't yeah. sort of realize that how many kilometers are on the clock, you know, in, in terms of your own knowledge and experience that you've gained in that particular area. So that's why I try and sort of lift it out into a bit of a pragmatic example. I know from a, a, a health tech um, development standpoint, we follow that particular approach, you know, where we've got feedback systems that are um, directly through surveys and um, ideas and um, customer service requests and, uh, you know, ad hoc communication with the uh, organisation. And that's combined with then um, tools that are actually uh, doing analytical meta observations of how products are being used. And you're able to actually then compile a perspective as to whether the product is um, working as um, intended by that person, by the user, or what's missing from it. And um, mm. both in terms of how they're, they're behaving with the product combined with the ideas and thoughts and feedback that the individual is um, providing to us, that mm. then sets us up with coming up with a hypothesis which is sort right. of leading into the idea of then saying, all right, we might have a justification to develop something here. Then we'll go out and talk to some people. And so we'll survey, and you, you're, you're mentioning right. that as well. And then yeah. we consolidate that feedback. And, you know, there's a value in it as well. We have a value system which is built around uh, thinking customer. So we want, mm. the, we want the customer definitely involved. In fact, all product development, I think, should be customer-driven. But you're right to actually qualify that by saying, well, it's got to make commercial sense as well. Yeah. You need a sample. You, if you go to one customer, you might actually get some insights that if you built them, first of all, you'd go broke. Yeah. And secondly, they would be telling you they need some stuff. You know, they might list 10 things that they need, but they only actually use the nine of those things once in a blue moon. And there may be other products out there that could actually achieve that. So it's not a slam dunk, but it's, I think it's a continuous process. Would you agree? Is that kind of the... Constantly, you know, yeah, constantly iterating, right? We're moving away from this idea of big delivery of things, whereas we test and have little experiments along the way, which is what you were saying as well. Little experiments, hypotheses. Little experiments. Testing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it is one of the um, branding uh, languages within the, the X in Health Tech X. We, we mm. use the X to define the experiment. Yeah, and you need to get out of, I suppose, 
the confirmation bias, which we can sometimes start to see. Yeah. And the confirmation bias essentially for people that might not know is essentially that you have an idea in your head and then everything around you or everything you start to look at starts to confirm that. And that's really, really risky both for business and for product and for, for life in general, right? Because, yeah, those sort of assumptions can cost a lot of money and cause think, a lot of pain. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter what type of business you own, whether it's a health tech business or a health provider business, the idea of sort of um, parking your own assumptions, uh, there's so much value. It's hard to do, particularly in the early stages, because you find yourself in a position where your team is coming at you and asking questions and you feel like you've got to have the answers. As you sort of mature mm. in a business, you start to realise, um, no, we're here to help our customers. You don't have to have all the answers. In fact, it's better if you don't and, and, and you sort of come to the realisation that you're not the customer and then just go out to your customer and ask them <laughs> what they Spot want. Spot on. I've felt that too, just working in my role, to be honest. Like sometimes people look at you as like the source of all knowledge because you are that voice of the customer. And it's sometimes hard to say, look, I actually don't know. But you know what? We can actually then go and do a test for it or we can go and speak to some customers or we can look at the data moving away from going, yeah, I've got all the answers to going, hey, how do we test that? Or what are our assumptions here? Yeah, mm. and, and it kind of resonates with that sort of um, age-old philosophical idea that um, remaining in that state of mind, you are free to receive the gift of knowledge and wisdom. And, um, right. and that comes from the world around you. So, David, you've got a, you've got a psychology uh, background. You're a um, psychologist, right? So, yes. Yeah, so obviously that is um, supporting the behavioural science element as well. You'd be pretty much in touch with that. What are the key areas of uh, psychology that are mm. underpinning the, the user experience and UX? Oh. Can you talk to that? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I've been asked this question quite a lot and I think back to my studies in psychology and back to what are the key assets or key things that help me in my job? They come down to being able to empathise with people. Um, they come down to then being able to communicate that to an audience and to help influence um, direction, especially within the you know user experience space. Um, I'm always a big advocate for more psychologists and more behavioural scientists and people interested in human behaviour to get into tech. I'm not, not saying that you need to be a psychologist or have studied psychology to do this work. I'm saying it is definitely another little, you know, arrow in your bow, definitely. Oh, it would make a lot of sense to me. I, I um, have seen a bit of stuff and maybe a lot of people do through the TED Talks and, and other things through uh, the online media where they talk about um, behavioural economics is there much of a difference between behavioural science and behavioural economics? It's all very similar, to yeah, be honest. It seems it's, to be. it's just the same sort of terminology, just rephrased. The more and more I look into it, it's just another way to explain something very, very similar, which is fascinating. And I think the difference is now why this is becoming so popular is that we are actually able to sort of come up with hypothesis, build something, embed some behavioural design in it, release something, and then learn from it really quickly as to how that impacts behaviour. And that's why it's so it's becoming so popular because in the past, I suppose it would take a lot longer to see that change, especially within human behaviour, because something I realise is that human behaviour actually doesn't change all that fast. I'm not saying it can't change, it just doesn't change super fast. But on the other side, technology does not stop. The two and two are sort of merging and it's creating this cool space where lots of people are just really interested in 
applying behavioral design and learning about the impact it has. Yeah, it's really interesting. The um, reflection there that, you know, you've got tech that's just, it just, it's, it's almost exponential. I mean, the amount of tech that's coming out into the global marketplace is just phenomenal every day. <laughs> if you're in the industry, you can sort of see that. Mm. If you're out in business, for example, and particularly in healthcare and, you, and you're just being exposed to this latest shiny object, you know, this latest next thing, mm. should, you, should you take it? Or do, you know, given that, that parallel issue of the human beings in your organisation, your team members, mm. are they going to be able to, you know, cope? What's their user experience going to be like as a, um, as a business owner where you're pushing your team to just try this next thing? We just subscribe to this latest thing, take it on, you know, implement it, make it happen, you know. <laughs> uh, is, is that part of the challenge that you deal with as far as um, designing oh. the experience? Huge. Like uh, I work, I work in a large one of the large banks, and um, I suppose a big piece of the work that I do is all around behaviour change. And I suppose bringing people on the journey with you, and building capability along the way. So I think it's great you can have this new flash process or this new flash um, technology. However, if we're not thinking about the people that are using it, to your point, then we're setting ourselves up to fail. And again, this is something that my, my psych studies and my background actually really reinforce is there's evidence-based approaches to behavior change as well. And that's the popular one there is around the ADCAR model. So it's really around building awareness, desire, knowledge, and then really reiterating that, you know, this change is coming. And I highly recommend as well Googling that one too, because I'm not doing it justice here, but I feel like I apply that a lot to the work that I do, sometimes even more over and above actually sort of the, I suppose, working on the tools. A lot of it is more about how do you influence behavior? How do you teach people this new way of doing? How do you bring them on that journey, which is a huge part of this? Yeah, I think it's key. Um, certainly from a health tech standpoint, uh, mm. trying to stay connected with um, uh, the human beings that are using the product and or product sets and being able to work with that. Where it gets complicated now in, I guess, yeah. where the world's at, it's not just enough to focus on one product, but you also yeah. have ecosystems of products. And the ecosystems of products are, you know, sharing subsets of data from one product mm. to the next. But then it creates a whole nother workflow or user interface experience that's in another product. And then if you add another one, you know, you've got three products and four products and five products. And, you know, I couldn't imagine any business today that just has one product. There's a basket of products that define the systems of a business, you know, and being able to actually work those through and understand the impact um, for the customer in having to <laughs> work with multiple products. That's sort of an area that we're, we're going to find out more about. I think we've all been really excited that we've had all these choices and now mm. the choices are now going to have side effects because of a variety of different issues. What yeah, you, you raise a really good point there. It's like we get really excited and sometimes when we're pushing towards a release of, say, a new feature or a product, we can start to creep in more and more things, right? You're probably familiar with this. It's called feature creep, right? And you just keep getting excited and piling more and more things, but that's sometimes coming more from a business angle or maybe it's even coming more from our biases and assumptions but we actually then don't consider that and what that means for our customers yeah so there's this fine balance that's this dance between user needs and business needs right but i suppose everyone needs to consider business owners product developers everyone are we at a point where you sort of have some principles or uh you know are there you know certain 
rules of thumb? I haven't personally developed my own. Uh, I think it would be great to have a set. But um, Nielsen Norman have done a great job of defining what, say, a good user experience is. And they've got 10 heuristic principles. You know, one of them just from the top of my head now is like, if a user makes an error or someone makes an error, make it easy for them to recover from that error, for example. Like just basic rules like that, which, you know, were created nearly 30 or 40 years ago and they have gone through a bit of a revision, but they're still very much applicable to the technology that we're building today. So those things really don't change. The technology changes, but the people using it really doesn't. Whereas, um, you know, for the human-centered design approach, oh, lots of guidelines around what makes a good human-centered design process. And I'd, I'd really recommend looking at um, D-School. They're a great uh, online resource and they've got a field guide as well for anyone wanting to run their own sort of process. Yeah, you know, we run a meetup and we have a global community on Facebook where we really help to promote this way of working. Come down, join the UX Psychology Meetup and I'm sure there'll be some links in the show notes and and come along because this is what we preach, I suppose, and this is what we try to enforce in the way that we work. Yeah, I will definitely put um, a link to that, uh, David, because you you often have different uh, speakers coming along to those uh, meetups as well and, and sharing different updates in knowledge and insights and techniques and what have you is so yeah. I think a lot of people get a lot of value out of that. What about some of the things um, that I've been hearing a lot about, not so much these days, but um, going back probably three to five years with, with our development teams, um, mm. you know, we started to understand this concept called cognitive load. Is that something you deal with and you could share, perhaps even define it from your point of view and, and work through it with me? Yeah, yeah. Cognitive load, that's a big one that keeps coming up now. Can you share a little bit more about the problem that you were having? Because cognitive load is a big one. The context for us back in the day was around um, multiple competing interests. You know, like you're trying to get you're trying to get a lot done, and there's mm. only a certain amount of hours in a day, and a certain amount of people in a team that can actually work with it. The pragmatic experience of it was that you know it's hard to excel at one thing when you're trying to do multiple things. You know, sort of <laughs> at, at once. And, and the load on the cognition, on the person's ability to problem solve and, and deal with that was, um, it's not the most satisfying experience. It can sort of um, bring you down. You know, that's the way I relate to it. But I was sort of curious mm. whether there's a, a more universal definition of the idea of cognitive load. Well, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Essentially, it's your brain can only absorb so much. And once it gets to a certain point, you usually can't focus on anything more. There's two angles to this. There's teams working on the products. I suppose there's customers using the product, right? So when you think about the customer using the product, from a cognitive load perspective, say on the user interface, you really don't want to be providing more than three things that they need to complete. In some cases, it's just one thing they need to complete, right? If you put multiple call to actions on one page, they get overloaded and you get confused, rightly so, because people online, including ourselves, are time poor and they just want to get what they need to do done. Simple as that. The second element to what you're saying is the teams building the products. And I suppose we are working on really complicated problems most of the time. And sometimes they're future things and they're so abstract, you can't even see them yet. But you're working on this thing in the future, right? So what I've seen is I've worked in teams that are working in Agile and I've worked in teams that aren't working in Agile. And essentially, Agile is a way to break problems down, right? And to to break them into smaller increments, and I'm sure you're familiar with this in the team, break it into smaller increments, you can then start to work in sprints. So you have a two-week sprint, for example, and in the the halfway point, you review how that's going and you have all these ceremonies around it. And I think 
that is a really good way to organize teams to reduce cognitive load, especially when working on such complicated products. For those who haven't heard it before, Agile is uh, about breaking something down to the smallest possible increment of value that Mm. you could deliver, uh, whether it's software design or in a project management context, so that your customer can then tell you whether they valued it and they got what they wanted, you know, in that context. And that feedback loop goes towards your human-centered design approach. You know, in software terms, once you release that feature, the customer will either love it or hate it or somewhere (laughs) in between. If they love it, that's awesome, you've nailed it. Um, If they're ambivalent, why? And then you've got some additional information to work with in terms of iterating a little bit more. And commercially, what's really good about Agile is, uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, I had a career previously in the corporate sector and the project management methodology on the main back then was waterfall, which is (laughs) let's think about the outcome all up front, right? And there'd be (laughs) lots of effort going into the documentation as, as you'd probably would have experienced in your own time. And you haven't actually tested or validated with a customer whether the, if you actually built that and delivered it, whether they would um, actually get any value out of it. And so, you know, that was the, um, the way things used to be done. I think in some industries mm. it still is, and maybe in some mm. places you can't avoid that. But the idea is, you know, why would you, you know, spend 12 months worth of resource, time and effort to deliver something that is complete and then, uh, and then the customer goes, oh, it's not exactly what I wanted. Exactly. Right. And Very then, risky for business, right? Massive, massive yeah. amount of investment. Whereas the agile approach that you're um, talking about there is basically, well, we don't have to wait 12 months to get a customer to tell us whether they value. We just need to wait two weeks mm. and we'll deliver it in two weeks and we'll get some feedback. And so the relative cost exposure, the risk, if you think about it from a business ownership standpoint, is you could put 12 months worth of effort and then lose all that effort or you can put two weeks worth of effort and if it didn't hit the nail on the head, then you could sort of just write that off and pivot to what pivot. the customer's now telling you is mm. exactly what they want. So it's a much smarter way to use your money, time and effort within your business. It's great to hear you explain that from, say, a business owner's perspective because I think this is something as a business owner you need to be aware of and thinking about because you can't just build products willy-nilly that aren't going to hit the mark, right? There's always this underlying, is it delivering value and how is the team going, right? I think Agile does provide a great framework for that. So it's, it's good to hear it from your point and your perspective. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. And it also reinforces that, you know, the, that idea that you get your own bias out of it because you you do you get the feedback and you really need that. If you, I've got this analogy, some people might have heard it before, but, you know, a business is a small group of people who are helping and serving a large group of people. If you second guess that, and go for the big bang approach, then you're not actually doing that. But if you stay present and connected with your uh, customers and Mm. you apply that commercial acumen of, you know, normalising the, you know, which option is the best pick right now, you know, because you're going to get a ton of ideas, as you know, and then it's a question Mm. of, well, what do we do next? So you've got to rank and prioritise that and sort of work through that process. Um, So that's the business side. That's the commercial side. Um, But certainly the principle just repeats itself over and over. All right. Well, David, that's been fantastic. I, I like to finish the um, podcast with a question, uh, which yeah. is to get your your perspective on how UX psychology could be used to reimagine healthcare and what sort of impact that might have on the healthcare uh, sector over the next sort of, you know, five plus years. What would you say? Whoa, great question. Great question. 
I think UX psychology has a lot to bring in terms of bringing really smart people in the tech space together to help solve these complicated problems. There's two parts to it, right? There's the people that already have the knowledge and there are people that I suppose don't have the knowledge in this, I suppose, human-centered design approach or human behavior approach. And I suppose it's about building that capability of the people that might be new to it um, and then, you know, helping support these communities and and teams to solve these complex problems because we're going to need that because more and more technology is going to be involving humans and we need to be ahead of that. So, yeah, I I think that's how it can help. Fantastic. David, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate that. And I always enjoy speaking with you. And uh, we will make sure you've, you've offered a lot of great insights here for links and uh, things to look up. We'll make sure we get in the show notes, the meetup group, UX great. Psychology, as well as um, some of the principles and uh, key people within the behavioral science space that you think um, people right. might get a lot of value out of and unpack it a little bit more because I, I, I totally get what you're saying there's big topics there thank you very much for having me on the show i really much appreciate being here thanks david thanks for listening this podcast is produced in collaboration with health tech x where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. And I'll speak to you in our next episode.